You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. General Henry Halleck's slow advance in the aftermath of Shiloh after replacing U.S. Grant in Grant's prior command with himself, allowed PGT Beauregard to save the bruised rebel army after the battle, and just as importantly, save the massive store of supplies the Confederates had been maintaining at their former Corinth, Mississippi base. After the evacuation, Sherman set about taking and occupying the town, repairing the railroads the rebels had damaged on their way out, and establishing a northern supply depot. Throughout the war, Sherman and his men gained invaluable experience in both logistics administration and railroad construction and repair. Sherman had some brief experience uh, with the St. Louis Railroad prior to the war, but it was during the war that he really became an expert. And many of his soldiers uh, became expert railroad repair techs. After the war, they had the opportunity to use this expertise when Sherman uh, oversaw construction of the Transcontinental Railroad with many of his former soldiers employed on the crews that were doing the the actual construction. Uh, Building the Transcontinental Railroads, uh, there were more than one, was a a massive and uh, monumental engineering feat. Uh, It's fair to say that three years of hands-on training in the occupied South with uh, ample opportunity for trial and error, uh, improvisation, perfection of existing techniques, and the development of new ones, was uh, instrumental in facilitating what what really was a, a very impressive construction project in the 1870s and 1880s. Now, we'll talk about uh, the Transcontinental Railroad later on in uh, our Sherman series, but uh, turning back uh, now to spring 1862, uh, after his work in Corinth, uh, Sherman was assigned to another, more daunting administrative assignment. Union forces had captured and occupied Memphis, Tennessee, and Sherman was assigned command of the garrison there. More critically, his superiors wanted him to win over the uh, proverbial hearts and minds of the citizens of Memphis and the surrounding areas to use the parlance of a war a hundred years later. Specifically, Union authorities wanted Sherman, acting as the military governor of Memphis, to restart the local economy and prove to the locals that cooperation with the federal government was in their best interests. Quote, Assuring all country people that they will be permitted to take their cotton freely to market 
and that the ordinary channels of trade will be immediately reopened. End quote. Now, Grant would realize later on that reopening the cotton trade uh, was maybe not such a good idea. Uh, that gold and greenbacks sent to Memphis in exchange for cotton were being funneled uh, to Richmond and used to support the rebel armies that federal forces were trying to suppress. But for now, Union policy was to convince Southerners that cooperation with the Yankees was the best way uh, to return to prosperity. Prior to the war, Memphis had been a thriving town on what you might call the semi-frontier, something of a, a commercial hub in the old Southwest. Predictably, the war had shattered the local economy. Sherman's job now was to get businesses back in operation and uh, civil institutions functioning again. The federal money pouring into the town from the large garrison there, uh, over 6,000 men in arms, would serve as a, a sort of stimulus package. Sherman threw himself into the job, even attempting to get involved uh, in the local uh, elite social scene. The citizens, though, were a little reluctant to get too close, setting aside their, uh, their loyalties. Uh, for all they knew, PGT Beauregard could push Sherman out of Memphis at any time, in which case any prominent citizens who, who earned reputations as Yankee collaborators might not fare so well. Even so, Sherman was largely successful in his efforts to reinvigorate Memphis's economy. Businesses reopened their doors, civic offices started running again, uh, trade with the northern states resumed, and massive smuggling operations, predominantly masterminded and carried out by the women of Memphis, funneled sizable quantities of money and materials to rebel fighters in the area. Now, it made sense. A significant percentage of Memphis's male population had volunteered for military service. And when they left, their wives, mothers, daughters, and sisters mostly stayed behind. Uh, by getting money and goods flowing through Memphis again, Sherman had provided the ladies an opportunity to help the cause. So they did. Making matters even worse for Sherman, most Union soldiers were uh, somewhat hesitant to uh, search or rough up suspected female smugglers. You know, they had wives and mothers too, after all. Now, Sherman, uh, of course, was neither stupid nor oblivious. So he caught on pretty quickly to what, was, uh, to what was occurring. Interestingly, Sherman cast some of the blame on the northern merchants. He wrote, quote, The cause of the war is not alone in the Negro, but in the mercenary spirit of our countrymen. Cincinnati furnishes more contraband goods than Charleston and has done more to prolong the war than the state of South Carolina. Not a merchant there, but would sell salt, bacon, powder, and lead if they could make money by it, end quote. There wasn't much Sherman could do about Cincinnati, uh, at least as long as the uh, Lincoln administration's policy was to permit uh, most trade with the occupied areas of the South. And as much as he despised politics, he had enough political sense to avoid the um, ill-advised approach that Grant tried, uh, however briefly. So Sherman went a different route, requiring citizens of Memphis to either swear a loyalty oath or leave town. And uh, quite a few ended up leaving as refugees, some voluntarily, but most not. 
the uh, civil institutions were more or less functioning again, but Sherman made sure that everyone knew who was actually in charge. Uh, He told the mayor in no uncertain terms that his authority as military governor was superior to any civic authority. And Sherman also reserved the right to arrest any citizen engaged in or suspected of engaging in any conduct detrimental to the Union war effort. That included strict censorship of the press, which I suspect Sherman found rather enjoyable. Quote, You boys had better be careful what you write, or I will be down on you. End quote. Sherman was justified in his distrust of the locals. Uh, citizens of Memphis uh, became an important source of Confederate intelligence, passing on to the rebels any useful information that, for instance, a junior officer might let slip after a couple shots of Tennessee whiskey at one of the city's saloons. But when an insurgency started brewing in the areas surrounding Memphis, Sherman really determined to crack down. When a train bringing supplies for the Union garrison was attacked by guerrillas, Sherman ordered that every man who happened to be in the vicinity of the attack be taken into custody. And when a Yankee riverboat was attacked on a nearby spot on the Mississippi River, Sherman ordered the destruction of basically every structure along the river for over 10 miles near where the attack occurred. And he issued a proclamation stating that for every future supply ship that was attacked, 10 families would be forced to evacuate the city. Now, objections to punishing civilians for the actions of of irregular fighters uh, were brushed aside. Sherman knew that there were, in fact, spies in Memphis, and he knew the people of Memphis were indeed supporting the insurgents. He didn't know, for the most part, specifically which civilians were spying and smuggling, so they were all going to have to bear the consequences. Now, the situation in Memphis represents the... uh, the paradox of counterinsurgency that persists into the 21st century. To dissuade anonymous civilians from supporting and joining the insurgents, you have to employ collective punishment. But collective punishment leads to more sympathy for the insurgents and eventually more insurgents. Or if you try the, uh, the kit glove treatment to win the hearts and minds, there's not really much of a downside to helping the guerrillas. And it's hard to convince the locals that their best interests lie in cooperation with the occupiers uh, when their sons are running off to join Nathan Bedford Forrest's cavalry volunteers. Sherman expressed uh, his frustration uh, with the task at hand in a letter to his brother, Senator John Sherman. I rather think you agree with me now that this is no common war. You must now see that I was right in not seeking prominence at the outstart. I knew and know yet that the northern people have to unlearn all their experience of the past 30 years and be born again before they see the truth. Though our armies pass across and through the land, the war closes in behind and leaves the same enemy behind. I don't see the end or the beginning of the end, but suppose we must prevail and persist and perish." The uh, dilemma extended to the Union troops operating outside of town in the occupied territory. Sherman's uh, initial thinking was that civilians uh, should be left alone, 
Foraging was strictly prohibited because respectful treatment was was thought to increase the likelihood that uh, occupied areas voluntarily would return to the Union. In an early order, Sherman uh, wrote of foraging, quote, This demoralizing and disgraceful practice of pillage must cease, else the country will rise on us and justly shoot us down like dogs or wild beasts, end quote. Union soldiers caught stealing private property faced harsh punishments. The enlisted men, though, uh, they viewed this as a betrayal. Why were Union officers more concerned with rebel civilians than with the good of their own men? It's not like the, the situation of the average northern volunteer in occupied uh, Tennessee was comfortable. They were living on light rations of poor quality food never knowing where or when the next guerrilla attack would come, uh, only that it was going to come. The frustration with the insurgents and with the aid the local civilians were, were obviously providing came to a head in Athens, Alabama. Three regiments occupying Athens under Colonel John Turchin, uh, who had formerly served in the Russian Imperial Army when he was known as Ivan Vasilyevich Turchaninov was surprised and routed by a partisan force. Turchin retook the town after receiving reinforcements, and the men extracted revenge for the suspected cooperation of the townsfolk in the prior defeat. As uh, Shelby Foote describes it, quote, The Illinois, Ohio, and Indiana boys took it completely apart, Cossack-style, raping Negro servant girls and stuffing their pockets and haversacks with $50,000 worth of watches, plate, and jewelry, end quote. Turchin's commanding officer, Don Carlos Buell, was appalled and promptly court-martialed Turchin, requesting his expulsion from the army. For his part, Turchin argued that he had, had left town for recon uh, at the relevant time, and, and he didn't condone the mayhem. Uh, according to one witness, who, of course, we can't be certain was telling the truth, uh, Turchin, quote, before leaving, told his men, I shut my eyes for two hours. I see nothing. Which, if true, would suggest that the, you know, the former Imperial Guard had condoned, if not encouraged, the sacking of the town. Uh, President Lincoln, though, he wasn't convinced, and instead he promoted Turchin to brigadier and increased the size of his command. The sacking of Athens and Turchin's subsequent promotion was something of a, a turning point in the Union conduct of the war. The gloves were coming off, and of course, Athens uh, would be cited by future Southern historians as evidence of the dastardly treatment the South had suffered at the hands of the Yankee invaders. Sherman uh, was not responsible for or complicit in the sacking of Athens, but he had known from the get-go, that a Union victory would require some uncomfortable methods. He wrote to Ellen around that time, quote, If the North designed to conquer the South, we must begin in Kentucky and reconquer the country from there as we did from the Indians. It was this conviction then, as plainly as now, that made men think I was insane. A good many flatterers now want to make me a prophet, end quote. Having participated in the uh, Seminole Wars, Sherman was referring to something specific when he talked about conquering the South as we did from the Indians. And to new friend Ulysses Grant, he wrote, quote, We cannot change the hearts of the people of the South, 
but we can make war so terrible that they will realize the fact that, however brave and gallant and devoted to their country, still they are mortal and should exhaust all peaceful remedies before they fly to war. Welcome to Portraits of Blue and Gray. This is part three in our series on William Tecumseh Sherman. I anticipate that this is going to be a four-part series, so after uh, today's episode, we'll probably have one more uh, nice long episode. And this this is a pretty long one um, to fill out Sherman's story during the war. Uh, And then after Sherman, we're going to move into Nathan Bedford Forrest. I'm well into the research on Forrest, and I expect that that's going to be a a fairly uh, interesting and hopefully entertaining episode. If you have any questions or comments about the show, feel free to email us at blueandgraypodcast at gmail.com. It dawned on me recently that when I'm listening to podcasts, I generally skip over the part where the host is talking about something other than the subject at hand. It's like the, uh, the part in Jeopardy when when Alex Trebek is, is interviewing the contestants about their, their cats or whatever. Uh, so I do my very best to keep these sections as brief as possible, and I will continue to do so in the future. As always, thank you all for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Sherman's term as military governor of Memphis gave way in fall 1862 to his participation in December of that year in a plot with uh, new pal U.S. Grant that I have to admit I find kind of funny. John McClernand was a connected Illinois politician and old associate of President Lincoln's who used his political clout to get appointed as a general commanding a force slated for an assault on the Confederate stronghold at Vicksburg, Mississippi. Grant and Sherman, though, thought the mission was too important and so conspired to commandeer the army that McClernand had raised. The plan was pretty simple. The volunteers were meeting up in Memphis, where McClernand would take command, but where Sherman was in charge. Uh, Grant, who was the, the superior officer in the region, ordered Sherman to assume command before McClernand arrived and begin an amphibious movement down the Mississippi with Admiral David Porter. Grant would simultaneously lead a force in an assault on uh, Vicksburg by land. Uh, As Sherman and Grant would learn all too well, taking Vicksburg wouldn't be quite so easy. The rebel fortress there rested on cliffs 200 feet above a bend in the Mississippi, from which the fortress's guns could shoot down upon any Yankee ships that might approach. And to the west, Vicksburg was protected by uh, the the Big River itself, and uh, by the Yazoo River to the north, and by swamps to the south. On December 20th, Sherman set off for Memphis in command of McClernand's 32,000 men. Grant, though, had to abort the plan shortly thereafter. When cavalry raids by Nathan Bedford Forrest and the loss of a supply depot to Earl Van Dorn cut off Grant's force from the railroad and its supply lines. Unfortunately for Sherman, Grant wasn't able to get word of the change in plans to Sherman, and Sherman 
got hung out to dry with no support. His 32,000-man army, or McClernand's army under Sherman's command, landed at Chickasaw Bayou about 10 miles north of Vicksburg on December 29th, and they cut their way through nasty swamps to attack the 14,000 rebels occupying Chickasaw Bluffs. After a a couple of of fruitless assaults on the strong rebel position uh, and and the 1,800 casualties that resulted, Sherman threw in the towel. Uh, As Kenny Rogers tells us, you got to know when to hold them and know when to fold them. And without support, Sherman uh, would have just been wasting men. So instead, he opted to pack the men uh, back on the boats and attack Fort Hindman, which lay about 50 miles up the Arkansas River and, and had been constructed to defend the approach to Little Rock. Fort Hindman had few defenders and much weaker defenses than Vicksburg. On January 9th and 10th, Sherman's force drove the Arkansans and Texans that were defending the fort uh, out of their rifle pits and trenches and into the fort itself. During the fighting, McClernand showed up, which uh, must have been a little bit awkward, and he demanded that Sherman turn over command. Now, Sherman initially refused, but uh, Porter, uh, whose gunboats were in the process of, of nullifying Fort Hindman's guns, acted as, as peacemaker and negotiated a compromise under which uh, Sherman w- would remain in command tactically and McClernand would hold a, a nominal command, which, you know, as a politician was what McClernand was really concerned about anyway. He wanted to, to make sure he got credit. So after about three days of fighting and with the uh, reinforcements requested by uh, Brigadier Thomas Churchill uh, failing to materialize, the overmatched Confederate garrison surrendered on January 12th, netting a, a few thousand rebel prisoners. Fort Hindman was a, a nice morale boost for the men, and control of the Arkansas River could be potentially helpful. But it, it didn't really amount to real progress in, in the overall mission of taking Vicksburg. It was a, a decent consolation prize, but uh, not any closer to the, the big goal. For that... Grant and Sherman would need to get uh, more creative. And what it boiled down to was trial and error. A plan to dig canals to access Vicksburg proved ineffective, and uh, an incursion up the Yazoo River by Sherman and Porter ended in a U-turn when the swampy mess they sailed into left them as sitting ducks for rebel cavalry. By February, it was clear that the operation had stalled out. And with the recent disaster back east at Fredericksburg, uh, the press was, was quick to pile on. Sherman made for a, a pretty convenient scapegoat. You know, stories uh, again popped up about uh, Sherman's uh, supposed insanity all throughout the national press. Thought we were done discussing Sherman's hate affair with the press. Well, we're not. It only gets better and better. A New York Herald reporter embedded with the army who may or may not have disguised himself as a soldier to uh, improve his access to military information wrote a decidedly unflattering and admittedly inaccurate, as he would later confess, uh, feature detailing the Chickasaw Bayou campaign. And Sherman, predictably, took offense. When, when Sherman learned of the story, he ordered the reporter's arrest. And the writer, Thomas Knox, didn't help his own cause when he told Sherman, quote, You are regarded the enemy of ours, said, 
and we must in self-defense write you down, end quote. Now, I'm not a journalist, but it seems to me that if you're embedded with an army and the commanding general, uh, who has a reputation for not liking reporters, uh, orders that you be put under arrest on the grounds that you were releasing confidential information, uh, in that case, declaring that that general was your enemy and making threats is probably not the best response. So for the reporter he believed he had caught red-handed, Sherman demanded a a harsh penalty. Uh, Venting his frustration, he declared, quote, Never had an enemy a better corps of spies than our army carries along, paid, transported, and fed by the United States. And to a friend, uh, he wrote that the press were, quote, the direct cause of more bloodshed than 50 times their number of armed rebels, end quote. Now, Sherman had said in advance of the campaign that any reporters who published contemporaneous accounts of his army's movements will be treated as spies. So he well, treated the reporter Knox as a spy, directing that he be tried and convicted of espionage and hanged or shot. And if Knox wasn't hanged as a spy, Sherman would submit his resignation. Kill this reporter or I'm going to quit. But, you know, Grant figured that that hanging journalists probably wasn't the best public relations move. And uh, Lincoln counseled mercy. Following a trial, the the Herald reporter was, was banned from covering the war any further, which actually was a pretty severe punishment. Um, but he was acquitted of the espionage charge and uh, the potential death penalty that that entailed. So Knox tried to appeal the loss of access to Grant, but his protests fell on deaf ears. Uh, Grant told him in, in no uncertain terms that, that he was not going to side with, with some New York Herald reporter uh, over his most trusted commander. Quote, you came here first in positive violation of an order from General Sherman. You made insinuations against his sanity and said many things that were untrue. And so far as your report had influence, calculated to affect the public service unfavorably. General Sherman is one of the ablest soldiers and purest men in the country. You have attacked him and been sentenced to expulsion from this department for the offense. End quote. Knox's colleagues retaliated with a slew of uh, breaking news stories about Uh, Sherman's now-confirmed insanity. And and this time, uh, they went after him with a vengeance. Uh, There was no more uh, condescending sympathy. Sherman was absolutely detested, and the feeling was mutual. Fellow officer Ethan Allen Hitchcock wrote, The newspapers are savagely abusing Sherman, one of the most brilliant soldiers the country has produced, and as I happen to know by a thousand evidences, one of the purest men in the lands. End quote. So uh, Hitchcock and Grant both uh, attest to Sherman's purity, whatever, whatever that means. But Sherman's purity aside, his wife Ellen recognized that Sherman was, was fighting a losing battle uh, against what he described as, quote, dirty newspaper scribblers who have the impudence of Satan, end quote. Uh, Ellen offered this sage advice. You can't stand up against newspaper power alone. Instead of resisting, why not use it? End quote. Uh, Sherman hadn't, uh, he hadn't signed up for Twitter, and he was stuck down in the Mississippi swamps. So uh, each new broadside from the national press went more or less unanswered. 
And with all the negative publicity, it was inevitable that the War Department would uh, take a look into the matter. Well, we talked in the episode of Grant about Charles Dana, the War Department agent who was um, ostensibly assigned to check in on on the condition of Grant's army, but, but he was really tasked with investigating the rumor that uh, Grant had had resumed his drinking. Well, uh, inspecting Sherman's mental state was a a sort of a secondary aspect of Dana's mission. And, of course, it, it didn't take long for him to conclude that Sherman was perfectly sane. Dana wrote of the, uh, of the press's favorite punching bag, quote, Everything I saw of Sherman increased my admiration for him. He was a very brilliant man and an excellent commander of a corps. Sherman's information was great, and he was a clever talker. He always liked to have people about who could keep up with his conversation. Besides, he was genial and unaffected. I particularly admired his loyalty to Grant. End quote. And the loyalty to Grant is an important part of uh, Sherman's story. The two commanders' friendship was was uh, less than, than two years old at this point, but, but they had, had really hit it off so quickly that, that, that you would have thought that they were childhood friends. Sharing a, a demanding and trying experience has a way of, of forging deep and lasting connections. So they unconditionally had each other's backs, and that partnership was, was invaluable in the cutthroat world of Army politics. A key component of the relationship was a mutual willingness to offer candid criticism, a freedom to disagree with no risk of hurt feelings. Now, Grant was the ultimate decision-maker, the uh, deciderer, as uh, W might say. Uh, But if Sherman raised an issue or disagreed with a proposed course of action, and and Grant thought that that Grant was right, Sherman would resume his position as a loyal subordinate keeping his objections to himself well, until after the war in his memoirs. There was no moping and, and no behind-the-back complaints to Washington. One such instance occurred in April 1863, when Grant told Sherman of his new plan for solving the Vicksburg puzzle. He would load the men up on transport boats, run the Vicksburg guns, unload the men south of the fortress, and then attack from the south and east. Sherman didn't like it. Too risky. Uh, a couple well-placed artillery shots or a couple of downed transports, and you have a disaster on your hands. And uh, the Vicksburg Fortress ha- had some serious firepower. This wasn't Fort Henry or even uh, Fort Donelson, after all. Not to mention, if the army was able to get past the, the rebel guns, once they crossed the river, they'd be completely cut off from their supply lines. As Sherman saw things, and this was going to change dramatically, in the not-too-distant future, requiring an army to rely on foraging was, quote, one of the most hazardous and desperate moves of this or any war, end quote. Instead, Sherman uh, wanted to cut bait and start all over, pull back to Memphis, regroup, and shore up the supply lines, and methodically move on Vicksburg from the north. But Grant, demonstrating a feel uh, for the PR aspect of the war, argued that a return to square one would be interpreted in the media as a defeat. The Union war effort was already suffering from from diminishing public support, uh, with Chancellorsville to uh, only add to that in the near future. So they had to get the job done from where they were and with what they had. 
Sherman's initial assignment was to lead a diversionary force north uh, for a feint on Chickasaw uh, to distract the Confederates while Grant managed the river crossing. General John Pemberton, the favorite son of Pennsylvania, who was commanding Vicksburg's defenses for the rebels, interpreted Sherman's movement as a withdrawal. So when uh, Grant made the run on April 16th, the rebel guard was at least a little bit down, and only one ship was lost. Sherman then brought his men back and followed Grant across. Now, rather than immediately begin the move on Vicksburg, Sherman uh, took a little detour and and marched on Jackson, Mississippi, about 25 miles east of Vicksburg uh, on Interstate 20. Sherman surprised the 6,000-man rebel force uh, there under uh, Joseph Johnston, uh, which hastily retreated. With the city undefended, Sherman's corps marched on in and occupied Jackson on May 14th, burning the railroad and, and anything else of uh, military value, you know, defined liberally, and uh, burned a few hotels and mus- municipal offices for good measure. Uh, Sherman then reunited with Grant, but he'd pay another visit to Jackson in July, uh, at which time the, the city was more or less destroyed. Or as Sherman reported, quote, Jackson, once the pride and boast of Mississippi, is a ruined town, end quote. So there was a psychological warfare involved in that, too. Jackson is, of course, the capital of Mississippi. The symbolism of ransacking the state capital was was intended to send a message. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. While Sherman was was horsing around in Jackson, Grant won a major victory over Pemberton at Champion Hill, after which the rebels were forced to quickly retreat uh, to the safety of the Vicksburg Fortress, where 31,000 Confederates holed up to await the inevitable siege. Uh, Looking back, most historians consider Champion Hill the pivotal battle in the uh, Vicksburg campaign. And following the victory, Grant directed Sherman to bring his corps up to join in in the pursuit toward Vicksburg. Grant wrote to Sherman, quote, The road to Vicksburg is open. All we want now are men, ammunition, and hard bread. They had known going in that supplies were going to be an issue, and what the army had brought was mostly gone. That meant the local Mississippi farmers were going to be asked to chip into the Union war effort, and... If they voluntarily agreed, Sherman provided bonds for payment after the war. Now, unfortunately, I don't know the extent to which those were were actually honored later, uh, though I suspect the Mississippians who who received bonds from Sherman uh, fared a little better, at least, than than the Pennsylvanians who would be provided Confederate bonds, courtesy of the Army of Northern Virginia uh, in the near future. And of course, the Southerners who declined the bond offer were nonetheless compelled to pony up. So, you know, why not take the bonds, right? By May 18th, the Union Army was within spitting range of Vicksburg. After a couple emphatically unsuccessful attempts to take the fortress by storm, 
Uh, Sherman described the attackers as being swept away like chafe, thrown from the hand on a windy day. Uh, They settled in for a siege. For the next six weeks, Vicksburg was encircled, starved, and subjected to an unrelenting artillery bombardment. Sherman remarked to Ellen, quote, I think we have shot 20,000 cannonballs and many millions of musket balls into Vicksburg. The truth is, we trust to starvation, end quote. So Pemberton's only hope was that Joseph Johnston, who was fairly nearby with five divisions, would break the siege or at least create enough uh, of a distraction to allow the defenders uh, a chance at a breakout. Uh, Johnston demurred, telling Richmond, quote, I consider saving Vicksburg hopeless. Now, it's worth noting that, that Vicksburg was, was not just any old Confederate outpost, uh, not even just a, a moderately important river fort like Fort Donelson. This was the Gibraltar of the Confederacy, the last best chance the Southerners had of maintaining some semblance of control uh, over river traffic on the Mississippi. Jefferson Davis called it the nailhead that held the South's two halves together and ordered Pemberton to hold it at all cost. Vicksburg loss would prevent men and supplies from Louisiana, Arkansas, and Texas from supporting the eastern Confederate states and vice versa. President Lincoln declared simply, quote, Vicksburg is the key. Not to belabor the point, but Grant, in his, his memoirs, wrote that, quote, Vicksburg was so important to the enemy that I believed he would make the most strenuous efforts to raise the siege, even at the risk of losing ground elsewhere, end quote. And Grant assigned his best man, Sherman, to the job of guarding the Union rear to protect against what Grant thought was, was Johnston's inevitable relief attempt that, as it turns out, never materialized. Johnston has come in for a lot of criticism for his his failure to make anything more than a a token half-hearted effort to to aid Vicksburg. Uh, He maintained that the fort's strategic importance was overblown and that he didn't have a sufficient force to make a difference anyway. Now, the traditional view of historians has been that that Johnston's uh, reluctance to come to Pemberton's aid was uh, essentially professional negligence. Shelby Foote, who was from Mississippi, excoriates Johnston for his inaction. Johnston does get more sympathy nowadays, though. Uh, He would undoubtedly prove himself a capable officer in the coming months. But for whatever reason, he thought Vicksburg was, was not worth the effort. Either way, On July 4th, 1863, Pemberton, faced with a choice between starvation and possible mutiny or surrender, opted for the latter, turning over to Grant the fort, the nearly 30,000 men guarding it, who Grant paroled rather than try to feed, somewhere around 50,000 rifles and over 170 artillery pieces. One estimate puts the lost guns at 12% of the Confederacy's entire supplies of cannon. Combined with the simultaneous results of Gettysburg, Vicksburg's surrender was an absolutely devastating loss for the South, permanently changing the complexion of the war and cementing Grant and Sherman as the Union's A-team in the eyes of President Lincoln. And they didn't rest on their laurels. Grant dispatched Sherman to once again evict Johnson from the nearby Mississippi capital. His directions were, were open to interpretation. 
Grant wrote, I have no suggestions or orders to give. I want you to drive Johnston out in your own way and inflict on the enemy all the punishment you can. So Johnston once again uh, gave up the city without a fight. And all the punishment you can ended up being quite a bit. Pretty much any conceivable military asset uh, in and around Jackson was, was included. And Sherman abandoned the pretense of paying for food uh, taken from the civilians. Food that the army didn't need was, was destroyed. Quote, the destruction of corn or forage and provisions in the enemy's country is a well-established law of war. This time, Sherman was rewarded with uh, some time off. The army made an extended camp, allowing Ellen and the kids to visit for six weeks. And nine-year-old son Willie, who was Sherman's favorite, particularly enjoyed camp life, shadowing his father throughout the time, staying in his uncle's tent, and becoming a a favorite of the men uh, in uniform who nicknamed him the Little Sergeant. So as pleasant as the visit was, it had to come to an end in October when Sherman received orders to join Grant in coming to the aid of William Rosecrans's Army of the Cumberland in Chattanooga. After the disaster of Chickamauga, uh, a dazed Rosecrans, who had had previously been a reasonably uh, competent commander, uh, sought refuge along the Tennessee River in Chattanooga, which was uh, soon thereafter besieged by Braxton Bragg's Army of Tennessee. When Lincoln started getting reports that Rosecrans was was no longer up to the job, he, he assigned Grant and Sherman with him to salvage the situation. They would be joined in Chattanooga by General Joseph Hooker with 20,000 men diverted from the Army of the Potomac. Upon getting the new orders, Sherman sent the family home to Ohio, but disaster struck during the return trip. Shortly after departing by boat, Willie became seriously ill. It was probably either typhoid fever or a nasty bout of malaria, but whichever it was, I hit him hard, and Willie died on October 13th in a Memphis hospital. Now, needless to say, this was devastating to his father. Uh, He lamented, quote, Of all my children, he seemed the most precious, end quote. And the grief-stricken Sherman described the the misery and, and also his resolution to not allow the overwhelming sadness to interfere with the task at hand. Quote, Sleeping, waking, everywhere I see poor little Willie. His loss is more to me than words can express, but I would not divert my mind from the duty I owe my country. On, on I must go to meet a soldier's fate. He confided to Grant that he can hardly compose myself enough for work, but must and will do so at once. And he managed to leaving on October 11th for the 300-mile march through the mountains to Chattanooga. Upon arriving, Sherman soon realized that the situation was even worse than expected. Surrounded by heights on three sides and with his back to the river, Rosecrans had put his army in a position to be slowly starved out by Bragg, who was in no hurry to force the issue, much to the frustration of his subordinates. In his memoirs, Sherman recalled his initial impression as he inspected the scene with Grant. The imposing lookout mountain and its rebel guns glaring down at them. 
Quote, With its rebel flags and batteries, Lookout Mount stood out boldly. Rebel sentinels in a continuous chain were walking through posts in plain view, not a thousand yards off. Why? said I. General Grant, you are besieged. And he said, It is too true. End quote. But, of course, they didn't uh, intend to take it lying down. Within a couple days, they were able to restore Chattanooga's supply lines, and Grant and Sherman were, were planning a surprise offensive. The Confederate position, though certainly better than the Army of the Cumberlands, was not quite so strong as advertised. Bragg's subordinates had lost confidence in him and campaigned to have him replaced, only to have... Jefferson Davis visit and decide to stick with Bragg, who was an old friend of Davis's. And Davis also determined to dispatch General James Longstreet, who was visiting from the Army of Northern Virginia and had played a a pivotal role at Chickamauga, uh, away from the Army of Tennessee to confront Ambrose Burnside in Knoxville. As it turned out, Burnside wasn't, wasn't doing much of anything. But the loss of Longstreet, a more than capable commander, and his force, kneecapped Bragg. And so with the the rebels somewhat weakened and with the Yankees recently strengthened, Grant decided to go on the offensive at the end of November. Now, it was a a fairly straightforward plan, like, uh, like Grant tended to favor. Sherman would lead the largest force in attacking the rebel right at Missionary Ridge, while Joe Hooker would hit the left at Lookout Mountain. George Thomas, who had taken over for, for Rosecrans uh, in command of the, of the supposedly demoralized Army of the Cumberland, would hold the center, uh, occasionally feinting to, to keep Bragg honest and to prevent him from reinforcing his flanks. So the fighting started on November 24th at Lookout Mountain. Uh, poor artillery and troop placement, thick fog that partially obscured Union movements and further limited the effectiveness of the rebel guns, and a weakly defended crossing on Lookout Creek allowed Hooker's men to push the rebels most of the way down the crest of the mountain. Uh, Bragg ordered a withdrawal of the remaining defenders to Missionary Ridge that night. He had had several weeks to dig in and to fortify the position, yet when Grant's offensive came, Bragg's force on Lookout Mountain, which by all rights should have been an extremely strong position to defend, uh, appeared unprepared. Early that same morning, an impressively rapid pontoon bridge construction allowed Sherman's force to cross the Tennessee unmolested. Sherman saw an opening, and he seized the opportunity to secure a foothold on the northernmost reach of Missionary Ridge. But upon taking the position, Sherman learned that he was not on Missionary Ridge at all. Instead, he had taken the nearby, but unconnected, Billy Goat Hill. Uh, I suspect Sherman's uh, well-known temper surfaced soon thereafter. Now, his scouts deserve some of the blame for the error but uh, due to the incorrect information they delivered, but, but regardless, the blunder was uncharacteristic of Sherman. Uh, he didn't have much choice but to strengthen the position on Billy Goat Hill and report to Grant that Missionary Ridge would not be threatened that day. The delay allowed the rebels to better prepare the Missionary Ridge defenses for the Yankee offensive uh, that they could be reasonably certain would continue in the morning. Now, the element of surprise 
that had been earned by the quick river crossing was lost. Uh, Sherman was going to have to pay the full price of admission to get a toehold on Missionary Ridge. Opposing Sherman, across a ravine and on the, the actual Missionary Ridge, was Confederate General Patrick Claiborne, an Irishman who had immigrated to Arkansas and who was one of, if not the, best field commanders in the Army of Tennessee. Claiborne is usually credited as having been the the first high-ranking Confederate to advance the idea of offering slaves the opportunity to earn their freedom uh, through military service in the Confederate Army. The proposal made perfect sense strategically, but Richmond refused to give the idea serious consideration uh, until the war was all but over. So the next day's follow-up offensive saw Hooker seize control of Lookout Mountain uh, against little resistance and Sherman frustrated by Claiborne on Missionary Ridge. Grant saw that Sherman uh, wasn't making much of any progress against Claiborne's stiff resistance and started to worry that if Bragg decided to shift some of the strength from the center to reinforce Claiborne on the right, Sherman might be vulnerable to a counteroffensive. And Grant's solution was to have the Army of the Cumberland uh, probe the rebel center to at least raise the specter of a potential threat. Instead, the Union soldiers overran the first rebel line they were supposed to be probing, and sensing that uh, the rebels were on the ropes, proceeded to carry the entirety of Missionary Ridge. It is one of the few examples in the Civil War of a successful direct assault on a fortified position, and the defenders deserved uh, just as much blame for the inexplicable result as the Yankees deserve credit. The rebel artillery was impotent, being out of position on the geographic crest rather than the military crest of the ridge so that cannon shells sailed harmlessly over the heads of the attackers. And Bragg's plan for the first rebel line to shoot once, then fall back to the second line, was not clearly communicated so that only half of the defenders knew what was going on, which caused a a premeditated fallback to turn into a disorganized route. And the route impeded the ability of the rebels posted further up the hill to hold their positions, and the chaos cascaded uh, into a frantic retreat all the way back to Georgia. After that, Sherman's continued offensive was academic. The battle had already been won. With his center having collapsed, Bragg had ordered a general withdrawal, leaving all of Missionary Ridge in Yankee hands. The rebel threat on Chattanooga neutralized and the Army of Tennessee in demoralized disarray. Sherman's next task was to lead a relief force dispatched by Sherman to save General Burnside in Knoxville uh, from what Grant and Sherman had been led to believe was another siege, this one conducted by the uh, the capable Longstreet. The reports coming from Knoxville had it that, uh, like in Chattanooga previously, The Union Army in Knoxville had been cut off from supply lines and was running short on provisions. So Sherman hightailed it to Knoxville to rescue Burnside. Now I'm picturing the scene uh, from Top Gun where Maverick goes supersonic to join the dogfight over the Indian Ocean just in time to save Iceman from the MiG fighter jets that had him hopelessly outnumbered. And I expect Sherman was imagining something similar. But alas, it was not to be. Sherman arrived in Knoxville on December 5th, but rather than finding Burnside desperately struggling to hold off Russian fighter jets, 
Sherman showed up just in time to interrupt a, a massive feast that Burnside was enjoying with his staff and other officers. Sherman, of course, is wondering what happened to the siege he was supposed to be lifting. And Burnside sheepishly admits that it wasn't quite so bad as, as they might have let on. Uh, it was uh, as if after, uh, after Maverick went supersonic, he arrived to find Iceman had been crying wolf about the MiGs and was instead in the middle of a game of topless volleyball, which uh, would have made for a much less exciting uh, 1980s Cold War propaganda flick. Regardless, Longstreet had withdrawn upon learning the results of Chattanooga anyway, so Sherman's forced march had been a wasted effort. Sherman began 1864 with an advance into the Deep South, targeting Meridian, Mississippi, Shreveport, Louisiana, and again ransacking Jackson, Mississippi. It was a search-and-destroy mission as far as anything conceivably of military value was concerned, and all the local farms were relieved of any food that they had on hand, leading to many refugees. Uh, With their homes and farms burned, some were forced to follow Sherman's army as their only means of sustenance. Now, as camp followers, they found themselves in the company of the emancipated slaves, also tagging along behind Sherman. Now, by 1864, Sherman had come around on emancipation, at least as a military tactic. In 1862, uh, he had privately opposed the Emancipation Proclamation, which was the the legal authority by which slaves in the occupied South were being set free. At the time, Sherman viewed the order as an unconstitutional confiscation of private property. And more practically, the newly emancipated slaves were being placed in a position where they had no means of support. Informed of the new orders, Sherman asked, Where are they to get work? Who is to feed them, clothe them, and house them? Now, these were reasonable questions. It was unrealistic to expect people who had been, had been held in bondage their entire lives to suddenly find a means of support in the middle of a, a war zone and with no property of their own. Sherman didn't like uh, one of the solutions being floated, that the newly emancipated should be put to work by the army, the young men as soldiers. This was no good. Quote, With my opinions of Negroes and my experience, yes, prejudice, I cannot trust them. End quote. Now, he hired a few as laborers, digging trenches and the like for about 30 cents a day, but that was pretty much as far as Sherman was willing to go. His thoughts on emancipation had evolved alongside his opinions as to the propriety of appropriating food and supplies from local civilians. He had become convinced of the military utility of both, and that was ultimately the bottom line. And Sherman was unquestionably a bottom-line kind of guy. Providing a means of support for the freed slaves, though, was decidedly not militarily advantageous. Uh, He wanted to move quickly and travel light. It was hard enough keeping the fighting men fed and supplied, so he did his best to discourage camp followers uh, as much as he could without ruffling too many feathers in the Washington bureaucracy. Sherman's operations in Mississippi and Louisiana went uh, largely uncontested by the rebels. Like during the Vicksburg campaign, Joseph Johnston wasn't eager to confront Sherman's larger army. Now, there's something to be said for Fabian tactics. The problem, though, was that while Johnston was playing coy, Sherman was picking the countryside clean of the provisions that Johnston needed for his own army's support. And obviously the crowds of refugees that Sherman's army left in its wake were not uh, not good for Southern morale. Now, the glaring 
uh, bold-faced exception to Sherman's uh, free reign came in the form of cavalry attacks on the Union supply lines and garrisons, courtesy of Nathan Bedford Forrest. Uh, By this point, Forrest had become a uh, continuing source of frustration, uh, a real thorn in Sherman's side. So he assigned General William Smith, with a cavalry force much larger than Forrest's, the uh, unenviable task of annihilating the wily and hard-as-nails cavalrymen known as the Wizard of the Saddle. Forrest was outmanned and outgunned, but he had a few tricks up his sleeve, and he held the big advantage of fighting on his home turf. And in Oklahoma, it was Smith who was taken behind the woodshed for a sound spanking. Then, a few months later, Union General Sam Sturgis met a similar fate at Bryce's Crossroads. Now, stay tuned for more on uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest in our next series. So, a disappointed Sherman uh, had to put Forrest's destruction on the back burner for now. Rest assured, though, Sherman did not forget about Forrest, and he was not shy about voicing his desire to see Forrest dead. Not just defeated, dead. Uh, In March, though, his friend Grant, now running the show in the Army, formally named Sherman as commander of Western forces, and upon consultation with Sherman, they devised a new strategy for winning the war. Their plan was to employ simultaneous offensives in multiple theaters to keep the rebels from using their interior lines to shift men between hotspots. Nathaniel Banks would attack Mobile, Alabama, while Franz Siegel would hit the Shenandoah Valley in Virginia, which provided most of Richmond's food. Ben Butler and the Army of the Potomac, directly under Meade but with Grant in Stowe calling the shots, would move against Richmond from separate directions. Sherman's job was to launch an offensive against Atlanta, driving through the Deep South. Now, Atlanta was a hugely important target militarily, but there was a psychological component to Sherman's role, too. They wanted to demonstrate to Southern civilians that, even deep in the heart of Dixie, the Confederate government and its armies were incapable of protecting its territory or its citizens, and especially not civilian property. Union military might could no longer be resisted. Anything they wanted, they could take. Anything they didn't, they could burn. It was a coldly practical strategy, and it would prove devastatingly effective. Sherman's first step was a 130-mile march from Chattanooga to Atlanta. As he later recalled, the soldiers making the march were eager for the challenge. He wrote, quote, The prevailing feeling among the men was a desire to finish the job. They were intelligent and could see that the rebellion was nearing its end so were willing and anxious to meet quickly any privation or danger that would bring the speedy end to the war. No amount of poverty or adversity seems to shake their faith. I see no signs of let-up. Some few deserters, plenty tired of war. The masses resolve to fight it out. End quote. Sherman's relationship with the men under his command had changed dramatically from when he had uh, denounced the volunteers he led at first Manassas as an unruly mob. They didn't think he was an impatient, overbearing meanie anymore either. And they no longer worried about his sanity. They called him Uncle Billy now and thought he was the Union's best commander. Uncle Billy had earned their respect and even admiration. As Shelby Foote describes it, quote, Sherman could make a soldier proud for weeks by asking for a light for his cigar, end quote. Sherman's army consisted mostly of volunteers from Midwestern states, Ohio, Illinois, and Indiana were all well represented. The Old Northwest as a whole had higher rates of military participation than the Northeast, 
And Sherman's Westerners were proud that they had found more success than the New Englanders being coddled, as the Westerners saw it, in Virginia. The Army of the Tennessee had a completely different personality than the Army of the Potomac. The chain of command was respected, but the idea that, that wealthy West Point-trained aristocrats were, the, were in any way better than the enlisted men did not fly with the men raised on the egalitarian frontier. And in a commander, they didn't want some perfumed prince. They wanted to be led by someone who was competent and would get his hands dirty. Sherman picked up on all this, and and he was uh, smart enough to play into it, present himself as a blue-collar kind of officer, notwithstanding his upper-class background. Uncle Billy made a point of walking around the camp without pretensions, shaking hands, learning as many names as he could, and talking. Lots of talking. Brigadier Benjamin Scribner recalled that Sherman's, quote, memory of details, of faces, of names, and of seemingly unimportant events and circumstances was extraordinary in one whose mind was so engrossed upon great subjects and absorbing cares. Another of Sherman's subordinate officers, David Stanley, described how Sherman would stay up until late into the night and chat with the soldiers on guard duty. Quote, Long after the rest of the company had gone to bed, he would remain sitting on a camp stool, wrapped in a well-worn army overcoat, leaning over the remains of the evening fire and seemingly pondering over the tremendous campaign before him. For want of company, he would join the sentinel, walk alongside of him on his post, and despite regulations, enter into long conversations with him. End quote. A reporter embedded with the army described the uh, unassuming image Sherman presented to the men like this, quote, Wearing a gray flannel shirt, a faded old blue blouse, and trousers that he had worn since long before Chattanooga. He talked and smoked cigars incessantly, giving orders, dictating telegrams, bright and chipper, end quote. Now, he purposefully kept his uniform a little disheveled and worn, so as not to stand out too much from the fighting men that he led. His uniforms were tailored by Brooks Brothers, but they intentionally didn't look like they had been tailored by Brooks Brothers. There was a, a conscious image he wanted to cultivate, and he did it brilliantly. And the men loved him. Uh, there wasn't a, a continuous struggle in the Army of the Tennessee to convince men to stay after their enlistments ran out, or to replace those who had already left. Uncle Billy just said he needed volunteers to stick around a little longer, and most did. The mutual respect and loyalty continued until well after Appomattox, and was a marked contrast from 1861, especially on Sherman's part. Remember, early on, this is the same officer who concluded of the volunteers, quote, This is a bad class of men to depend on in a fight. They may eat their rations and go on parade, but when danger comes, they will be sure to show the white feather, end quote. In 1864, though, without any reservation or hesitation, he said of the Army of the Tennessee, uh, which, of course, relied heavily on volunteers, quote, There is no better body of soldiers in America, end quote. Sherman biographer Robert O'Connell describes uh, Sherman and the organization he had built as, quote, A force that morphed a crowd of farm boys into an army capable of conducting effective conventional field operations, siege warfare, amphibious assault, and anti-insurgency, end quote. They had come a long way combining experience in battle with hands-on, in-the-field training and construction of earthworks, railroad repair, and bridge building. And they were as expertly efficient 
in destruction as construction, pioneering the use of Sherman neckties, for example, to prevent the rebels from repairing rail lines that Sherman decided were no longer useful. A Sherman necktie was simply a section of track that had been heated enough that it could be wrapped around a tree. Most of Sherman's men, like their general, didn't really care about slavery or abolition. They had volunteered to restore the Union, not to free slaves. Some were even a little put off uh, by the change in the Lincoln administration's policy, though most admitted the military utility of emancipation. And now they were about to embark on a march into the heart of Dixie in pursuit of the Confederacy's second most important prize, Atlanta, freeing slaves throughout the trip. It wouldn't be easy. Sherman would have to rely on a single, highly vulnerable rail line, the Western and Atlantic that ran from Chattanooga to Atlanta, to support the 100,000 men under his command, and whichever hangers-on happened to join them as they went. Tasked with opposing Sherman were Joseph Johnston and the 65,000 rebels under his command. Johnston had taken over after Braxton Bragg's collapse at Chattanooga. The army had been predictably demoralized by Chattanooga, but the effects were not quite as bad as you might expect. Just as the Army of the Potomac had blamed their embarrassing performance at 2nd Manassas on John Pope, the rebels blamed their loss squarely on Bragg. And as McClellan's return had improved Yankee morale, so too had Johnston's relief of Bragg raised the spirits of Johnny Reb. Uh, Now, Johnston wasn't the guy you wanted in charge when you needed decisive action. But he was plenty competent as a defender. Uh, Sherman described how Johnston had, quote, the most exalted reputation with our old army as a strategist, end quote. And it's clear that Sherman had greater respect for Johnston than for just about any other uh, rebel general that he faced. The two generals had diametrically opposed objectives. Now, Sherman wanted Atlanta, but he was more interested in destroying Johnston's army. Under the uh, attrition-type strategy adopted by Grant and Sherman, forcing the rebels to defend Atlanta was more of a means to an end. Uh, Not to diminish the strategic value of the city, it was hugely important, but the Union army could occupy any city it wanted if they could prevent the Confederates from fielding an army. As for Johnston, Jefferson Davis made abundantly clear that protecting Atlanta was the top priority. But Johnston saw preserving his army as a priority of, of at least equal, maybe greater importance. And these differing philosophies would end up uh, leading to a conflict between Davis and Johnston uh, that would ultimately cost Johnston his command. Sherman's Atlanta campaign was carried out differently than the famous March to the Sea that followed. On the way to Atlanta, Sherman moved slowly and methodically, carefully protecting his supply lines and ready to leave occupying forces at any step along the way, whatever was necessary to protect the ever-important rail line. Foraging was very limited. Sherman needed the army to be able to, to sit tight when it needed to, which allowed him to avoid a confrontation with Johnston on unfavorable terms. Uh, O'Connell employs a, a great metaphor to describe the, uh, the downside of a campaign that relies on foraging. Quote, Foraging was useful, but it turns an army into a shark that must keep moving to survive. End quote. Uh, Stay in the same place too long, and you run out of local farms to relieve of their food and supplies. So on the other side of the coin, Johnston's objective was to convince Sherman uh, to attack on terrain that would equalize some of the numerical disparity. And he would also uh, rely on Nathan Bedford Forrest to threaten the railroad from the rear as a means of, of applying pressure to Sherman. To that end, 
Johnston initially positioned his army directly in Sherman's path at Buzzard Roost, a terrible door of death, as Sherman saw it. Johnston's men occupied an 800-foot ridge along the vital railroad and dared Sherman to attack. Now, you'll recall Sherman knew the Georgia terrain uh, quite well from his expeditions through the southern countryside earlier in life. And he was, frankly, much too smart to attack Johnston uh, while the latter occupied a terrible door of death. So on May 9th, he set the precedent for the entire campaign by, instead of attacking Johnston, going around him. To stay between Sherman and Atlanta, Johnston had no choice but to pull back and again occupy a strong position in Sherman's path at Rezaca. And again, Sherman went around. And Johnston again pulled back. Then, after missing a rare opportunity to attack Sherman's vulnerable and divided army in transit, Johnston fell back to Altoona Pass. Then, he cut off yet another flanking maneuver, leading to sharp but inconclusive fighting at Dallas. And so, on the dance continued. There was skirmishing and an occasional limited action, but neither general would commit to a full engagement. They were both still too young and wanted to continue to play the field. Or Johnston couldn't afford to fight on equal footing, and Sherman knew better than to attack entrenchments. Or did he? Sherman was making uh, headroads closer and closer to Atlanta, but all the marching was starting to wear his guys out. The farther into Georgia he got, the more railroad he had to protect, too. So between protecting and repairing, he was also starting to get spread a little thinner along the railway lifeline than what he was comfortable with. And there was the question of Forrest. So far, he'd mostly stayed in Mississippi, but he was bound to take a run at Sherman's supply lines eventually. Now, Sam Sturgis was supposed to have taken care of that. Sherman sent him from Memphis into Mississippi with 8,000 men with the sole purpose of murdering Forrest. Figuratively. Well, sort of figuratively. In Sherman's words, quote, Forrest is the very devil, and I think he has got some of our troops under cower. Follow Forrest to the death if it costs 10,000 lives and breaks the treasury. There will never be peace in Tennessee till Forrest is dead. End quote. But rather than delivering Forrest's head on a pole as a gift to Sherman, Sturgis scrambled back to Memphis with his tail between his legs after receiving an unceremonious hickory switch to the backside at Bryce's Crossroads. Now, as it turns out, the problem that Samuel Sturgis and William Smith failed to solve, that is, the danger that Forrest would bust up the Army of the Tennessee's supply lines, would ultimately be more or less alleviated by A.J. Smith after getting some crucial assistance from Confederate President Jefferson Davis and his brain trust in Richmond. Uh, but that wouldn't occur for another month. In late June 1864, Sherman was anxious with concern that Forrest would be behind him in Georgia any minute. And as a result, he'd have to divert men and attention north and away from Johnston and Atlanta. Johnston's army once again occupied a formidable position, protected by well-prepared earthworks, directly in Sherman's path at Kennesaw Mountain, Georgia. Now, it's difficult to say exactly why Sherman chose to divert from the methodical flanking approach that had been more or less working thus far. Maybe concern over Forrest, maybe he thought a direct assault would catch Johnston off guard after all the prior lateral movement. Maybe he just thought his men were ready for a fight. Whatever it was, on June 27th, Sherman decided to launch his men at fieldworks that one unfortunate brigadier ominously described like this, quote, 
They are powerful works. We can never take them, end quote. A day after that observation, that hapless brigadier lay lifeless on the field alongside over 3,000 dead and wounded comrades. At Kennesaw Mountain, Sherman, who was normally wary of attacking a well-positioned opponent, did what Johnston had been practically begging him to do since the campaign started almost two months ago. In the brutally hot Georgia sun, the Yankee soldiers charged into the teeth of rebel artillery and overlapping rifle fire and paid a heavy price. Importantly, though, rather than repeat the futile attack, as Burnside had done at Fredericksburg and Grant would do at Cold Harbor, Sherman cut bait. He had seen enough, so he disengaged. Discretion is, after all, the better part of valor. So he swore to his men that he would never do that to them again, requested and received a one-day truce with Johnston to bury the dead, allowing the more uh, fortunate to barter with their once and future countrymen on the other side. Coffee for tobacco. Kennesaw Mountain caught Sherman some heat at the time and has led to Monday morning quarterbacking since. Union General David Stanley, who was with the Army of the Tennessee and had something uh, of an axe to grind, later recalled critically, quote, Sherman never ceased to grumble about the failure of his strategy, and yet it was all his own inexcusable fault. Sherman never gained the moral courage to fight a battle. He never had the moral courage to order his whole army into a general engagement. Knowing that he had a force superior to Johnston's, Sherman would attack or threaten a flank, bring on partial engagement, get a lot of men killed, and affect nothing. He liked to lay his failures on others' shoulders, and when the scapegoat attempted to explain or argue the case, he was never forgiven. End quote. John Schofield, another Union general, paid Sherman uh, uh, this backhanded compliment with regard to Kennesaw Mountain. Quote, Sherman's capacity as a tactician was not by any means equal to his ability as a strategist. End quote. And Whitelaw Reed recognized that with Sherman, as with any other commander, you had to take the good with the bad. Quote, he is indeed warlike by nature, and his ardor often carries him beyond mere military rules, sometimes to evil, as at Kennesaw, sometimes to great glory, as in the march to the sea. In moving, supplying, and maneuvering great armies, he is without a rival or an equal. End quote. Uh, Reed then added that Sherman's, quote, topographical knowledge was wonderful. End quote. So notwithstanding the error at Kennesaw Mountain, Sherman's talents for logistics and topography were proving to be the difference makers in the Atlanta campaign. The day after the temporary truce, Sherman prepared for, you guessed it, another flanking march, and Johnston had no choice but to abandon the strong Kennesaw Mountain position. Through his judicious maneuvering, Sherman was getting dangerously close to Atlanta now. Johnston had the city to his back, defending from across the Chattahoochee River, and he was starting to get some serious pushback from Richmond for allowing Sherman to get so close to the city without forcing battle. Then on July 9th, a creative feint allowed Sherman's army to cross the river virtually uncontested, and Johnston was compelled to withdraw to Peachtree Creek, a mere five miles from the city. Now, it's important to note that defending Atlanta was considered a very high priority for the Confederates. It was the second most important city in the Confederacy, both because it was a railroad hub and because Atlanta was responsible for a good share of the rebels' meager military production. And losing another state capital would be a real drag on morale. Jefferson Davis left no room for confusion. Atlanta had to be defended. But Joseph Johnston didn't see it that way. 
and he had all but concluded that the best strategic play was to abandon the city. His priority was preserving his army, and he no longer thought it possible to accomplish both objectives. In Johnston's view, the South could still continue fighting if Atlanta fell, but the war would be lost if the rebels lost the ability to field an army outside of Virginia. These differing visions led President Davis to replace Johnston with someone he knew would fight, 33-year-old Texan John Bell Hood. Hood was probably the single worst general to command a major army on either side. He had seen some success as a subordinate, with a more sober-minded superior to keep him reined in, but in overall command, Hood was a disaster. Lee had recommended against giving the command to Hood, opining that the Texan was all lion, none of the fox. And Sherman later recalled that Hood was bold even to rashness, just what we wanted. Johnston's strategy had been to refuse battle except under decidedly favorable conditions. With a smaller army, he believed it was better to play defense. He wanted to drag Sherman into the deep water, make him overstretch his supply lines, and only deliver a big punch if opportunity knocked. But that was not Hood's game. Who was a brawler whose strategy could be described as when in doubt, attack. And on July 19th, that's exactly what he did, recklessly losing 3,000 men on the first day of the offensive and another 6,000 on the second. Sherman countered the next week with a circular advance aimed at cutting off the railroad supplying Atlanta. Hood responded by again attacking, taking another 5,000 casualties. A couple weeks later, Sherman was able to take the railroad after defeating Hood at Jonesboro, and now the rebels had no choice but to give up Atlanta. So the vitally important city still fell, but Hood managed to decimate the army in the process. On September 2nd, Sherman marched into Atlanta, sending a famous wire to President Lincoln, quote, Atlanta is ours and fairly won. A reply came soon after from sometime critic and rival of Sherman, Henry Halleck. As Halleck saw things, Sherman's campaign for Atlanta has been the most brilliant of the war. A substantial portion of Atlanta's population had already left or fled with Hood's army, but there were plenty of others who didn't have much choice but to stay in the city. Sherman gave them the option of renouncing the Confederacy or leaving town. Sherman was without question a smart man, and he knew that what he had accomplished was a big deal. The grand offensive he and Grant had set in motion earlier that year had otherwise fizzled. Ben Butler was bottled up by Beauregard at Bermuda 100. Jubal Early was successfully opposing Franz Siegel in the Shenandoah Valley. Nathaniel Banks' Red River campaign was a dumpster fire. And, of course, Grant and Meade were stuck in a bloody stalemate with Lee. Sherman's campaign, though, had been as successful as they could have possibly hoped. Atlanta firmly in Union hands and the Army of Tennessee in tatters. If any doubts had lingered about Sherman's mental condition or capacity as a commander, they had been put to rest. There was even talk about a Sherman run for the presidency, which he firmly rejected. Quote, if forced to choose between the penitentiary and the White House for four years, I would say the penitentiary, thank you. End quote. Sherman refused to get publicly involved in politics. That wasn't the role for a general. He wouldn't endorse Lincoln for re-election or George McClellan in his bid to unseat the president. Even so, historians have widely concluded that Sherman's victory was decisive in the 1864 election, securing Lincoln's bid for a second term that had appeared doubtful only weeks before. 
And on a personal level, Sherman took great pride in his accomplishment. He had made a name for himself more prominent than even his senator brother and father-in-law. To the latter, Sherman couldn't resist boasting. In a triumphant letter to Thomas Ewing, he wrote with great satisfaction, quote, You have often said that Napoleon had no subordinate to whom he was willing to entrust a hundred thousand men, and yet have lived to see the little red-headed urchin not only handle a hundred thousand men smoothly and easily, but fight them in masses of tens and fifty thousands at a distance of hundreds of miles from his arsenals and sources of supply, end quote. Sherman had pulled off a truly impressive feat in protecting supply lines stretched from Chattanooga to Atlanta while evicting the Confederates from that vital city. But he wasn't finished. There was more work to be done. Sherman was about to up the ante and prove that he could lead his army on a successful campaign, not with perilously extended supply lines, but with no supply lines at all. His next move would be a march from Atlanta, the rest of the way across Georgia, to the port city of Savannah, living off the land, supply lines be damned. As we'll see next time, Sherman was ready to march to the sea. And on the way, he would make Georgia howl. That's going to do it for part three of our series on William Tecumseh Sherman. Next time, we'll be looking at the March to the Sea, uh, Sherman's March through the Carolinas, and then his post-war career. As always, if you have questions or comments about the show, you can email us at blueandgraypodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.